Welcome to Monday Morning Chats with Megan and Miles. My name is Miles Wilson. Uh, I am a junior biz concentrator, as I'm sure you all know. And I am Megan. I am a biz uh, certificate. And today we're going to be talking about the mythology of the artist. This week, uh, Megan and I wanted to first start by addressing uh, kind of this podcast series and the class discussion topic, um, which was the mythology of the artist. Um, we felt like it was somewhat of kind of a question um, towards the class of what is the mythology of the artist and what does that mean? Um, so I'll start by saying personally, since I didn't really understand what the mythology of the artist was uh, before reading and viewing uh, this week's course material, I decided to throw it into Google uh, and I noticed that was uh, there was a book um, written by someone named R.C. Costello and it kind of briefly uh, explicated what the mythology of the artist was or what they thought um, the mythology of the artist was. So in the description of the book there's a quote kind of about what they think the mythology of the artist is and it says how should we think and live as artists only a strong mythological foundation can produce great art it feels like a new story is needed in this book i'm trying to describe glimmers of a new way of thinking a new mythology that would be more holistic than what has come before in a new way of being as an artist by studying the lives of great artists as well as knowledge from history psychology and philosophy we can start to imagine something new Interesting. The second line, only a strong mythological foundation can produce great art. Um, I think this could be a controversial statement because the way I'm interpreting it, it sort of seems like he's placing the value of a work of art in the hands of the viewer because it's dependent on the viewer's perception of the person that created the art as opposed to um, like whatever value the the producer places on the art. Yeah, and no, you, you mentioned this kind of question of like the viewer um, and the viewer's role in art. Um, and I think the viewer's role in art is also inherently tied to kind of like the history of art as we see it in, I guess for us would be in America or growing up in American life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one, what does it mean to be successful as an artist? Mm -hmm. uh, and two, what is art? supposed to look like, mm -hmm. um, what is iconic art, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really interesting because we have, within this series of uh, readings, we have like one of the most iconic artists, I think of, you know, I guess the modern past few centuries would be Andy Warhol. Uh, and I think when placing Andy Warhol in context uh, with some of the other artists that we read, we have, we have a, you know, like Sterling Ruby versus Andy Warhol. One we've probably never heard of until now, or us as students have probably never heard of until now. And an iconic American artist uh, that, that we know a lot about and that we've seen a lot of work from. Um, so I think it's kind of like, what were our expectations going in, reading about, you know, Andy Warhol and then reading about Sterling Ruby. Um, and like reading about artists that we haven't heard about versus artists that we already uh, have some background on.
something that came up in the calls um, and the viewings from this week. It all has to do with space and the presence of artists. And I think there are questions about in what ways do artists take up space, whether that's like physical space, like Sterling Ruby, who has that massive studio in LA, I think it's like 120,000 square feet. Also, I think there's like a distinction that we can draw between private and public space. So in terms of private space, I was thinking about different behaviors and the artist's practice and their process. And also in the Ruby video, he mentioned mania in a lot of artists and sort of this like, I guess like obsessive behavior almost in their production process. And I think it might be interesting to go over that. And then also in terms of private space, I guess we could categorize materials because um, that's somewhat related to the process. And then in public space, that has to do more with the presence of the artist, um, their status, whether they're seen as an icon or like how well known they are, how vocal they are about their work, um, whether they feel like they should explain their work to the public or if they think it should just speak for itself. To touch on that idea of space, I think it was really interesting because I started with the video of Andy Warhol eating a hamburger. Oh really? That was my last one. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I started with that video and just immediately my first thought was like, hmm, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. Why am I watching this video in full? And it's as if like, since it was titled Andy Wall, or Warhol eating a hamburger, I had this expectation that something relevant was going to happen or mm -hmm. something relevant was gonna be done that was like, oh, this is an Andy Warhol moment, you know? Right. So I didn't double speed the video. I didn't fast forward. I, I didn't do anything. I just watched it entirely in its four minutes. And I was like, wow. I just watched Andy Warhol eat a hamburger, <laughs> nothing unique happened. So talking about kind of like, I think also that mental space and that mental real estate mm -hmm. that an artist holds mm -hmm. in the people who view his artwork, uh, view their artwork, sorry, is, uh, is important. Um, just because it, it kind of addresses uh, like one, the way that we look at artists and what we think of them. Um, but, but I think also it, it's a question for art viewers. I think that um, on Kawara, I think he's an interesting character because you could say that he's really well known and he has such a strong body of work in the sense that it's all the same in a way, like visually, it's all very cohesive. He just creates these large paintings with the date and then there's usually an accompanying uh, cardboard box, I believe, with like newspapers from that day pasted onto it. So in that sense, his body of work is very recognizable because it's just so cohesive and so succinct. Um, and he did that for years and years. He was notorious, I guess, for being a more um, introverted individual and he didn't really speak about his work. He didn't present his work for a long time, I think like three or four years um, after he started making the date paintings, he finally revealed them. But in that sense, there's another sort of artistic character, I guess, where he is well known, but also makes an effort to stay hidden in a way, or at least it seems. I thought Ankawara was extremely interesting, um, especially with this idea of kind of repetition, but I thought it was really interesting to look at the way that Ankuara took up space, uh, I guess, in the context of time. And 
I think it's so interesting to think about that kind of the idea of repetition and these dates, you know? He's creating in ways uh, kind of this, this holistic picture of what a large span of his life looked like. And I think it's super interesting that we can visualize that in someone's artwork. Uh, and I don't know how I, how I feel about it, or I don't wanna make a comment about it uh, too quickly um, mm -hmm. because I haven't necessarily unpacked that yet. Um, but I, I think it's a, a really interesting, not, another really interesting uh, way of looking at space, um, which is the space that time takes up or, you know, the space that you take up by creating work over a large period of time and looking at what that says. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Also, I think there's an interesting connection here with the text on Warhol. He was really afraid of waste, which like is interesting because it directly connects with this idea of space. Like he didn't want to take up more space than was necessary in a sense. I think there's a quote in the text. Um, Warhol says that at the end of my time, when I die, I don't want to leave any leftovers and I don't want to be a leftover. Um, and I think this ties in interestingly with Kawara's work because um, in a way you could say that Kawara is acting on the same sort of like fear of having or leaving something behind um, because he's taking the time to preserve every date that he um, paints onto a canvas. Um, and I think it's also interesting to think about how these date paintings feel or they could be read as very, I guess, mechanical in a way, if you were to like give a harsh critique of the work, just because they, they're they all in the like same sans serif font. But what's beautiful about it is I think Kawara in a way takes a step back and allows the viewer to take the straight facts and um, reflect on the date themselves and to see what meaning that has for them in their personal lives. So in a sense, you could say that Kawara is like then giving space to the viewer um, just by calling out these dates and then stepping back and allowing any further interpretation to take place in the mind of the viewer. Yeah, no, it, in my opinion, it felt, I was immediately like, wow, he's just putting the ball in other people's <laughs> court. And I thought that uh -huh. was super interesting. Um, and I think that's something that might have made his work extremely powerful mm -hmm. is kind of giving the viewer that space, you know, to reflect on a moment tied to their own kind of upbringing. Bringing, mm -hmm. And I guess their own mythological foundation, you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. Not, not necessarily just the mythological foundation of the artist, but the artist asking art viewers to look at their own uh, mythological foundation, kind of like how they got to be in the position that they are in now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think... Also, with Kawara's work, um, the way that he is so prolific, like he has so many of these paintings, it's a huge body of work. I think that's also an interesting connection to um, Sterling Ruby, who is another artist um, that we looked at this week. Um, and he has that massive studio in LA that's like 120,000 square feet. Um, and so he's taking up space in a I guess you could say a similar way, although I think that 
um, Kawara's paintings are probably like distributed across the world. I mean, I'm not exactly sure um, where they're located, but it's interesting to see an artist who just has work all collected in this one location. Um, and he, I guess you could also tie him into Warhol um, because with this idea of waste and waste management that comes up, um, I found it really interesting that Ruby recycles his work. I don't know how you felt about that, but I think like he produces a lot and then um, after a few years have passed or something um, and he's like moved on from that work, then he'll recycle the materials and turn it into something new. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, no, Sterling Ruby was extremely interesting to me, mainly because first things first, when I saw uh, the first video on uh, on Sterling Ruby, uh, it was talked about like I think this manic cycle, um, mm. and it was it was like I was confused. I'll admit it because no questions mm -hmm. were being asked. Um, it was kind of like this like shaky camera like following him while he was painting these <laughs> large like textiles. Um, right, and and then it kind of went in and looked at his space as an artist. I was immediately amazed at just how much space he had to work in mm -hmm. and what that allowed him to do the capabilities um, that that he was afforded by having such a large space um, but then you made this comment about him recycling art which i thought was super interesting um, he talked about that a little bit in the second video we looked which is kind of a, more of i guess an artist feature of him it was kind of like this this basin with a few of his old works in it. Um, that was a piece that kind of like stood out to me. Mm. And I was kind of like, that's a super interesting concept of also taking work that you've done in the past and work that was meaningful to you and addressing like your growth between those two points mm. and then taking your work and recycling your past now into the work that you're currently creating. What does that say? Um, mm. I don't know. I feel like I throw a bunch of these open-ended questions out <laughs> never get anywhere um but i guess <laughs> no they're guess interesting that's... to consider <laughs> um yeah. yeah also i think it's interesting like you bring up this connection between sort of like a a more utilitarian purpose i guess for recycling the materials but then it's also deeply rooted in something that's more conceptual right like this idea of growing from your past self and like recycling and making something new from it. I, I also found it interesting how he brought up um, this idea that his work is not abstract or he wouldn't classify it as abstract, but rather he would classify it as a new type of realism um, because he's taking something and turning it into something that's so deeply personal to him that even if that's not legible to other people and it may be read as abstract, it's actually very realistic for him because he is working with his past self, his past traumas, um, his past experiences, and he's turning it into something visual or, yeah, something visual to present to others. Yeah, and, and kind of that idea of this new realism and kind of an artist's connection with their past, I thought that that's a great kind of note to help us dive into uh, one of the videos that we saw uh, which was on Jacoby uh, mm. Satterwhite, mm -hmm. um, where he kind of talked about his past, um, you know, growing up having cancer mm -hmm. and playing Final Fantasy and how right. video games kind of, you know, um, video games were 
were highly influential in the work that he went on to create. Um, and it's kind of like how something hangs with an artist. Um, mm. You know, there's so many kind of questions again about about space within this this idea of Jacoby Satterwhite inhabiting a virtual space that is mm -hmm. in some ways almost like infinite. And right. what that does when you have those infinite capabilities to constantly take up space, you know, it's literally just data, you know, mm -hmm. that you can only consume. And it seems there's almost an infinite amount of that. Right. Um, so what happens when you can create a space that large? Uh, mm -hmm. And then also we looked at kind of like gallery installation that he had. Um, in his work, it seemed to be highly informed by, you know, his mother's presence. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he's got these amazing recordings of kind of his mother's acapella. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, it, but it's interesting to look at the ways in which, you know, both Jacoby Satterwhite's past as, you know, his past, as well as his mother's past have kind of come together in his artwork. Mm, definitely. And I think... I mean, I believe that this is possible also if you're working with physical materials, but I agree that um, I think it, it's very interesting to point out that he's working in the digital space and you could argue that it's just infinite. There's, it's endless. Um, you can create as much as you want. And I do think that he's taking advantage of that. I mean, he's like really prolific too. I think actually a lot of the artists that we looked at this week, I like one of the most impressive qualities was just simply like the volume of work that they produce. Um, but I, I think it, it works well for him because I, um, he spoke about how his work is almost like a mediation device for him and he uses it as a way of reminding himself that he's alive. He's He's here on this earth because um, he mentions like skepticism around um, mortality, um, especially with his experience um, with cancer when he was younger. And I also just, yeah, found his um, way of drawing materials really interesting because like you mentioned, he uses Final Fantasy because that's something that he played when he was like in the hospital. And so yeah, I think it's really cool to see how interwoven his creation process is with simply his like life experiences. Um, and material is another thing that I was kind of interested in talking about this week because like we mentioned, we wanna draw this distinction between um, private space and public space and how much um, of each an artist may take up, how much they think they should take up. and with private space, I think, I mean, you could argue that it falls under pub, or sorry, with materials, I think you could argue that it falls under public space, but I had kind of categorized it as private space because it's part of their creation process, which I view as a very um, private thing. I don't know how you feel about that though. I don't know, like maybe it depends on the artist, I guess you could say the creation process might be a very public thing. It might have to do with like performance art maybe. But in terms of material, I thought that was a connection with Hugh Hayden, who was the first artist that I looked at. Um, and I thought, like, he seems to be really intentional with the materials he's choosing. Um, a lot of his work is done where he uses wood quite often. Um, and I think it serves both a functional purpose, but it's also very intentional conceptually because... I think he mentioned that 
he like looks at the history of wood or like a type of wood um, and like what their properties, what the wood's properties are. And like that ties in very closely with the story he's trying to tell with the object that he creates too. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, I'm so glad uh, you found the time to bring up Hugh Hayden um, because immediately after I kind of read about his work and viewed it, I was like, wow, like, do they just, do Lex and Martha just know like what I aspire <laughs> to be as an artist? Like, <laughs> like, I thought it was amazing. I was like, I've, I've done a lot of or work. I have been thinking of a lot of work kind of in this culinary, culinary space mm. Um, mm. and kind of looking at like what food means as material what mm -hmm. kind of like the ritual of dining cuisine is. Mm -hmm. um, so that just immediately I thought, I was kind of like, wow, Martha and Lex, that's, yeah. that's weird, you guys, <laughs> yikes. But that, that's amazing <laughs> at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but when you talk about kind of like material and the, the difference between private and public space, I thought it was one super interesting how Hugh Hayden with a lot of his wood, you know, also thought of this idea of waste, but thought about he was obsessed with this idea of like where wood comes from mm -hmm. and I noticed that like a lot of the times in Hugh Hayden's work um, he'll say like this is an extension of branches or explained you know kind of like how where this wood was drawn from um, how the tree is still alive uh, and I, it kind of put his work that is now in like a private I guess gallery back into like the public mm -hmm. for me it's like you can there's still like a public remnant of you know, something that's now used for his private work versus mm. what you could have done by eliminating the tree as a whole and, you know, taking that wood, converting it to lumber, then making something out of it. You know, there's a mm. connection back to the, to, to the public with that. Right. And right. I think it's also interesting, it made me think of another um, artist we looked at, Judith Bernstein, uh, mm. who has these kind of amazing uh, graffiti gallery installations. And she talked a lot about men's bathrooms kind of as you know and you talk about like material like private and public material um and hers is kind of like i guess her source material is like inherently private or in a private location it's in mm -hmm. these men's bathrooms you know right. and she would take the time to go into him and go into this space and look at you know what's on the walls what looks i guess inherently or privately uh masculine in this time period uh, and I just thought that was, again, I always in my, my statements by saying, I thought that was super interesting. I don't know if it was. Yeah, like, yeah same here. Um, I start every statement with that. <laughs> yeah, I start and close every statement with, I thought it was super interesting. And then like, yeah, I just thought that was super interesting. Um, <laughs> There's maybe something. I need to get, yeah, I need to get <laughs> what more What does interesting mean? <laughs> what do true. you mean by interesting? Yeah, um, Megan really hitting us with that unpack that right now. Like, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I was also really excited by the connection with like culinary arts with Hayden. Um, and I think it was mentioned in the text last year. I think it was last year. He actually like had a show at the Bainbridge house. Did you know about that? No, it's like I did right not next know about to the that. Garden Theater. Oh my God, yeah. you, would, you should have gone. I mean, I didn't oh go. God. I wish I had gone too. <laughs> but my roommate actually went, I think. Um, and she showed me this 
clip and I think it was mentioned briefly in the article but it was basically like a dinner party that he held and it was like a white table everybody had to wear white you should look it up it's really cool um, I'm gonna look it up right now yeah and he like I think he converted all the food into mush or something that would fit into a tube and he had everyone eat out of the tube I'm pretty sure I could be messing this up but it was really interesting no no I read about this I read about uh -huh. this in the article about yeah. him kind of like wanting to separate everything from the food and it just to be focused on the food so separating rituals sep separating settings mm. separating everything that interaction mm. and just wanting it to be focused on solely the food its right. food constitution not even its texture and right. kind of like blending things up and like knowing what it was like to taste like oreo mush you know? <laughs> um and i was like wow that's super interesting um don't know how i feel about that taste wise because i was thinking i was like what happens with that that hamburger and <laughs> what happens when we throw that in a blender and make that mush like ugh, you know um right. But yeah, I'm gonna give my closing statement. Always, that's that's super interesting. So interesting. So interesting. <laughs> yeah, and then um, you know, Warhol contradicts all of that by simply eating the hamburger. <laughs> the Warhol video. Um, again, we were talking about this earlier, but it was like the mental space that I spent. I felt played. <laughs> I'll admit it. I felt played. I, I, it was the first video I watched and you said it was the last video you watched. Mm -hmm. Um, but like right in, I, I had the time, I was kind of like, okay, going to go through all of these videos, read these articles thoroughly. I'm presenting a podcast on it. And I start with this video, Andy Warhol eating a burger and I'm like expecting something. There's like a, a bunch of anticipation. I'm like, oh, okay. Like this must be like an iconic Andy Warhol moment. He goes in unwraps this, this burger i'm like literally taking like mental <laughs> notes i'm like okay what's the packaging looking like and it's what just four movement? minutes yeah what's what are his movements it's three minutes of him eating a burger a minute of him standing silent and then saying my name is andy warhol and i just ate a burger and i was megan when i tell you i was pissed i was pissed i almost like threw my That's computer so i was like funny. i didn't fast forward this and it's that question of kind of like the mental space then artist takes up in your head, which is something we discussed. Right. Um, but it's kind of like, why did I afford Andy Warhol the time to watch a four minute and 34 second video uninterrupted, you know, not fast forwarding, right. not, you know, putting it on double speed. Why did I watch that? And was it informed by the fact that Andy Warhol is Andy Warhol and he is mm -hmm. recognized, you know, across the world as mm -hmm. a great contemporary artist. Was that preconceived notion already in my hand head would I have given or afforded the same you know courtesy to you know someone I haven't heard of to a sterling mm -hmm. ruby you know right. to right. Uh, a Jacoby Satterwhite would I afford that same right. um, kind of respect and courtesy to them it, it was yeah. interesting to me that's a that's an interesting question um, because <laughs> I actually I didn't mention this earlier but I I think that I had an different reaction or different expectation than you i watched the video and i expected nothing to happen because i knew he was andy warhol and i knew that he could get away with something like that <laughs> that's um, so yeah that's wild that's what i, lo I love yeah. that way of thinking <laughs> so in that sense i guess you could say that um the statement you brought up at the beginning with um i don't remember the name costello about the mythology of the artist holds true um it's a strong work of art because it's tied to the myth of Andy Warhol. <laughs> yeah, 
the mythology of the artist. It's a topic I'm interested in uh, talking about more in class. Um, I mean, it's it's been a pleasure talking with you, Megan. Um, but yeah, Thanks. I think we should end it there. I think <laughs> yeah, we should drop the good. ball there. Um, <laughs> leave people to think about what interesting really means, you know? Uh, <laughs> what is so interesting about this, uh, about these, uh, these artists uh, and this idea of space? Um, and that's something, yeah, we'll discuss in class on Tuesday. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Monday Morning Chats with Megan and Miles is a podcast brought to you by Viz 392 Productions. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen with us and hope you'll return for next week's conversation where Megan and I will give you some insight into the secrets of this podcast, how it came to be, how it got its name, and most importantly, how we ended up here today. <laughs>